Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Welcome back to my discussion on family-based visas with immigration attorney Luis Rojo. In part one, we discussed what a family-based visa is, who is eligible for this type of visa, chain migration, wait times, and the term anchor babies. We hope you'll enjoy the rest of our discussion. There's so many sitcoms that talk about and kind of laugh about green card marriages. And can you talk about how are those visas proven to be legitimate? And what happens if a couple would try to get married for a visa in order to get the visa? Um, Getting married for the sole purpose of getting an immigration benefit is completely illegal. And it has a terrible consequences. You're facing like $100,000 of fines and five years in prison if you engage in this. Um, so they take it very seriously. And like some officers in their offices, they even have like that warning there. Um, I don't know how pervasive it is. I don't know how often this is going on. But most uh, most spousal petitions are, are legitimate. It's somebody who has a foreign-born spouse and would like to have them be, you know, U.S. residents. Um, so whenever fraud is detected, and it can be detected like uh, pretty easily. So you, they look at an application and they look for immediate factors. Okay, age disparity. Okay, that can be one. That can be something that leads them to believe it's a fake marriage. You have somebody who's significantly older than the other. And they ask for evidence uh, right off the bat. Like when you, su- when you supply a application for your spouse, you're going to want to include like pictures. You're going to want to include a combined financial documents, all these things that would make up a marriage. And sure, like if you have a determined couple who is absolutely set on defrauding the government, they can you know, set out to produce all these documents. Uh, but eventually you're going to have an interview. In that interview, these officers are trained, like they know what to look for. Uh, I mean, they know if you're fidgeting, they know if you don't know the other person. It's not necessarily confrontational. It's not confrontational until they suspect something, until something smells off. But they know they're they're very well trained, and what they do if they suspect such a uh, such a fraud, they notify an agency within the agency, which is the National Security and Fraud uh, Fraud Detection. So these are very serious folks, you know, ex-military. They're in, yeah, they're investigators. Like this is what they want. This is what they want to do, and this is like what they're trying to sniff out. Uh, so that's whenever you hear the horror stories of you know people getting split up from another and like one goes into one room the other goes into the other and they ask a series of like questions nothing nothing very like uh, embarrassing or that intrusive but sure questions that one should know about the other and that's when they get um you know, sense now just because they smell something's off doesn't mean they're going to deny it right away but they also want to do like a further investigation so they'll have like home visits and they'll see if you know the other person's living there just basic things and if they deny it on that basis, then they can also refer you to the uh, the prosecutors tried for this sort of thing. Like they they pursue it. They want to discourage others from doing it. How long does it take to get a visa for a spouse? Well, it depends. Like if you're a resident uh, petitioning for your spouse, it, there might be a little bit of wait time. Uh, if you're a U.S. citizen and petitioning for your spouse, there's no... Uh, there's no extra wait time other than the administrative process, other than you submitting 
the chain of applications that are necessary. So if you're doing it... How long does that take? Um, it depends. Like if you're doing it inside of the United States, which is called the adjustment of status, uh, this can take anywhere from six months to a year. It really depends on where you're filing, what part of the country, and what office you get inside of any state, or even what's going on uh, today with the uh, COVID. You have offices that are shut down, so they're not able to see any recent person. These officers have a little more like free time on their hands, so they're doing applications faster. So the processing time can vary uh, just because how many people are working in the department, how much, uh, how backed up they are. But um, I would say anywhere from six to nine months is a good average as to what's happening right now. Does immigration court recognize same-sex marriages? Oh, uh, they've been doing this uh, since 2013. So in 2013, you had U.S. versus Windsor, which was the uh, one of the first like landmark cases that uh, invalidated the defense against uh, defense of marriage act. So once uh, defense of marriage act was invalidated, then the USCIS or all federal agencies, including immigration court, had to. Uh, validate any marriage that was legal where it occurred. So let's say, uh, you know, I live in Texas and in 2013, you couldn't get married. There's no same-sex marriage here. But if you did so in another state, immigration court here in Texas has to recognize it because it's a federal agency. So they've been doing it since uh, 2013. And then you had uh, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, which then every single state like had to recognize uh, the marriage in their own state. So that's been a non-issue ever since. What about um, adoption? Is adoption, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of assuming that I guess you can only adopt if you're a U.S. citizen within the United States. And so are those, those would be unlimited, is that correct? Uh, they're unlimited because they, they're given the same uh, status as if it were your own child. If it's an adoption, then uh, they're treated as if it were your own child, in which case they are immediate uh, family. But there's like several ways uh, to go about an adoption, uh, depending on what country the child is from. So if you're you know, going to the Ukraine and you want to adopt a child, uh, you have to follow very specific rules because there are signatories to a convention, the Hague Convention, which is a treaty that's meant to protect the, the safety of you know, children uh, being transported. Uh, so you have to f- go through an agency there. And when the child comes over, he comes over as a U.S. citizen. He jumps uh, the whole residency part. Okay, I think that makes sense. You mentioned unlimited visas for if you're a U.S. citizen citizen who marries a spouse who is not documented or for those um, children under 21. So you mean that other visas are limited. Can you talk about what those limits are? Sure. Uh, And that's how you get these long wait times, uh, because they're only uh, given a certain amount of visas each year to be divided between the what we call the preference categories or family that's not... uh, given that high priority of immediate relative. Um, Let me see if I have a number for you. There's 480,000 family visas available a year. And it's a bit of a formula to get to how many are allocated then to the preference categories. Uh, You take the total that are allowed a year, and then you subtract the number of immediate relative visas that were given out. And whatever's left over, those are the preference uh, categories. And those are just allotted uh, proportionally to, uh, to all countries. Uh, there is, however, a uh, minimum number of the visas that have to be allocated 
to the preference category. So even after you subtract the immediate relatives, there has to be at least 226,000 of them that have to be allocated for the uh, family preference category. And that's 226,000 per year for every country? Uh, that's, that's for every country. But uh, some countries have more petitions than others. And that's why you have, uh, again, these uh, countries that have like longer. Variations. Yeah, that's great. Who, who makes that number? And can that number change? Does it change? It can, uh, but only through an act of Congress. So this has already uh, been uh, set out. And only a, uh, a change in legislation would be able to increase or decrease that number. And when was that 226000 per year family visas available for every country? The, the current system was, uh, was signed into law by uh, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, but I don't know which Congress uh, set the two, uh, 226,000 one. Okay, but it's been a fair amount of time that that number has not been changed. Yeah, that's correct. What reasons would there be for, you know, family, you have to petition first. We learned that in our first episode before any residency can be granted, um, which can take a number of years for that reply to even come, yes or no. If you petitioned for some family member, what are some reasons why they would not approve your petition? Oh, there's a, the whole list of them. Uh, so being eligible for for family immigration is just one step. So you have a, let's say uh, you have a child who's a U.S. citizen, you're not, he can petition for you, sure. So he gets you to the door, that's the petition. But then you also have to be uh, examined for your own eligibility because there's a whole list of reasons why you would be denied. And this is, uh, we put this in category, uh, inadmissibility is what it's called in immigration law. It's reasons why you cannot be granted a green card. So this ranges from alien smuggling uh, to crimes you've committed to the number of entries you've had to the U.S. Uh, this would make you ineligible for a green card, notwithstanding your eligibility as a immediate relative or as a, you know, family preference category, you're still subject to your uh, own actions in the past and present. Can you go into more detail about that? I'm just really curious, like what are all crime, what types of crimes, like what if you get a misdemeanor or a speeding ticket or, you know, what, what sorts of things specifically? Yeah, this is, uh, this is nuts and bolts stuff. Um, it's not, it's not unfair either. So some people, uh, would look at somebody with, you know, three DWIs and say, okay, this person is not, you know, worthy of a green card. But the immigration law is written such that you're not going to have an, a sense of uh, of equality or justice at the end of it. Some people are going to be uh, eligible because they committed the certain types of crime. Other people are just not going to be able to be admissible. Uh, so one of the crimes that's uh, really harped on is any crime involving moral turpitude. So this is written over and over again in uh, immigration law. Uh, if you're committing several crimes that uh, involve so moral turpitude, um, think like theft. That's a that's a crime of moral turpitude because it's uh, it involves a I don't know moral choice. It's not very clearly defined, but in any uh, act of deception, for example, these are crimes that could fall within that. But then there's even more nuance. So just because you committed that crime doesn't mean it's all over because the crime would have had to meet a certain threshold for jail time. Uh, so not all misdemeanors and even not all felonies. Even if you have a felony in, certain, you know, in some situations, it can still be uh, acceptable. 
So it has to depend. It depends on the type of crime, but then also what punishment would I guess be required for that crime. Yeah, they also look at that. So um, when you're when you're reading the law, it'll it'll tell you the type of crime, but it also say, uh, but if the crime was punishable for one year or less, then it's not. You know, then you fall on this side of the fence. Uh, so there's there's. And the reason it has to be so uh, nuanced and detailed is because you're dealing with a federal agency who has to interpret laws from 50 states and territories. And not every state punishes crimes the same way. Not every state is, uh, some states are more lenient. uh, uh, So they have to set these, you know, lines in the dirt in order to make it a little more even. Even today it's not, it's highly litigated. any criminal uh, action and uh, sentencing, this is all uh, examined by the courts and has to be appealed. Uh, it, it's, it's detailed. Sure. And so this kind of makes it sound like if you're trying to petition for some family to be here, it would very much be in your benefit to have an immigration lawyer. Is that correct? It, it helps. Can you do it without a lawyer? Sure, sure. Uh, of course you can. Uh, if if you have the time and you have the patience uh, to to read through the the list of requirements, um, all this information is is free in the uh, USCIS uh, website. They have every single form that is needed for for immigration on there, and you can download it. And they have written instructions, uh, but they're but they're not going to give you legal advice. They're going to tell you what you can file. And where and how much, but you'll need a lawyer if you're having trouble determining if you can do it. Uh, but also, it's it's something that's so important that you want professional eyes on it. Uh, I don't know. You can definitely change your own oil, but sometimes you just you go to the professional. And if you have a complex entry and exit, if you have complex uh, criminal issues. You want a professional looking at it, um, and I, hes- I hesitate to, you know, say something so self-serving as that you need an immigration lawyer. But you definitely want a professional. And when it's not an option due to economic, you know, constraints, uh, there are organizations out there. I worked for Catholic Charities for a number of years, and you know, provide um, aid uh, to people who wouldn't otherwise be able to uh, hire a private attorney. Uh, but they exist for a reason. It's because it's complex and it's nuanced, and people have very complicated lives. Like not, uh, not a lot of people can just petition and read a list off the internet and be able to do it successfully. We talked about that. If you have, I guess, two or more illegal entries over the border, you get like a ten-year ban. Is that that's correct, right? Yeah, this is one of the reasons. Uh, I would say the number one uh, reason that I see why somebody that comes to consult uh, with me can't immigrate because they have uh, multiple entries. So entries really started uh, being like heavily uh, punished. Like in this was uh, Bill Clinton with the uh, Reform and Responsibility Act. So he wanted to discourage this, you know, back and forth sort of a travel that's unauthorized. So mm-hmm. if you came in, without permission you stayed one year without permission and you leave you, know, you have you don't have to leave because you were deported but let's just say you just leave your your parent was sick you you left the country you have a 10-year exclusion without even knowing about it so 
you leave the country and you have this exclusion, you never knew because you're not, you know, you're just a regular person and you're not reading uh, the latest immigration bills. So if you come back after that, let's say you have that 10 year exclusion and you decide, well, let me go back to my life in the US. You come back, that subsequent entry makes you permanently excludable. Like there's no easy solution. It's an extra uh, punishment. So you already excluded for 10 years and you decided to violate that 10 year. So now there's an elevated, uh, you know, castigation for it. One more thing on the kind of using a lawyer and potential. Can you talk a little bit about notarios? Notarios, um, it's a service that's provided by uh, persons not authorized to practice law. Um, they, they can come in like many forms. Uh, it can be people who set up a little office, you know, next to a grocery store, and they put as advertisement tax preparation, uh, documents, scans, copies, basically kind of like a, uh, a FedEx store. But on the side, we'll help you fill out your immigration forms. This is not legal and it's not advisable for anybody to do because there's no accountability for this person. This person may be helping you uh, fill out forms that you may not know the language and you need some assistance, but they're also giving you advice. They're also telling you what you should and you shouldn't do, what form to fill out, what form not to. And they're very much wrong all the time. So these are persons who, uh, who are trying to take advantage uh, of the need that's out there. Can you petition in a language that is not English? No, these forms are entirely in English. So you need to be able to understand English to be able to do any yeah. of these forms. Or have somebody to help you. And somebody cheap to help you. So that's why the notario can be a you know very sought-after service. Because you don't want to pay the, the, maybe the high price for, for an attorney, but you still need assistance. Your family members may not also speak the language. So we're relying on somebody. If you're implying maybe these forms should be available in other languages, I think that would uh, alleviate some of these situations that happen where notario gives like bad advice and the person ends up in deportation proceedings. It could be something that could help that. I want to just go back one more time before we kind of wrap this up. Can you just talk briefly about the costs at each of those phases again? We had mentioned them in the first one, but I think it is nice to just keep in, the, in our minds. Yeah. What are those costs of the petition, the green card? And then how long does the green card last? Do you need to renew it? Does it cost again? Yeah. Kind of just break down for me sort of the money piece of this. I like this question because they're like debating a 10% surcharge right now. So these costs are never fixed. Uh, they go up and uh, right now the the agency is in need of money. So they're considering like doing a surcharge on top of their fee increases. Uh, if you're trying to do your uh, residency inside of the United States because you qualify for that, um, you're looking at, let's say, your spouse. Uh, that petition alone is $535, and to apply for residency on top of that is uh, like $1,225. So you're looking at over $1,700 for that process. And then, so if you're a spouse, you can wait three years and then apply for naturalization. Does that cost then again? Sure, naturalization is about, runs you a little over 700 Okay, and do those costs change based on your category? Like, are they different if you're a resident applying for a brother? Oh, thankfully they do not. Uh, they don't discriminate in that okay. sense. It's uh, the standard petition, the family petition, the I-130 form is a uh, is the same for everybody. Uh, there's, change, uh, there's differences with ages. Um, 
sometimes because somebody who's under the age of 14 won't have to get their fingerprints taken. So there's variations like that, but uh, the set form fee is the same for everybody. Once you have your residency, does it last until you potentially apply for citizenship if you ever do so, or do you need to renew it regularly? The status is permanent. So once you become a, uh, a permanent resident um, without any conditions, and we can get into that uh, next, if you're granted the 10-year card, only the card expires. So it's a card that lasts 10 years and has to be renewed for you know security purposes and also so they can kind of like keep tabs on you a little bit during that time. Uh, so if you mm-hmm. choose to be a resident for the rest of your life, you can, but you have to renew your card because it's a physical document that has security features and has to be updated. Does that cost? Yes. So to renew your uh, green card uh, would cost 455 uh, plus a biometrics fee. And you could potentially just keep doing that forever. Sure, that is. Uh, nobody is required to apply for naturalization if they don't wish. But can that residency be taken away? It can. So any uh, subsequent misdeeds on the resident uh, residence holder's part, like committing crimes, especially within the first five years of uh, being granted that residence, can result in deportation proceedings. So once you have a green card, it can't be taken away that easily. You have to be placed in a proceeding with an immigration judge, and he has to decide whether he's going to take that residency away from you. Okay. Okay, Luis. Well, this was very informative and um, much of the detail that I was interested in, and I hope others are interested in. Where can people learn more about you and or your your organization? I work for a private firm, uh, Jaime Barone. with offices in Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, and uh, Virginia. Thank you again, Luis, for sharing your expertise with us. We appreciate you talking immigration. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration. Immigration.